Today we take up, once again, Paul's instructions for marriage. And last week we began with Christ and the church as the foundation and model for marriage and saw the important foundation for Paul's teaching that was laid in Genesis chapter 2 by Moses, which he quotes directly in this passage. And this week we'll focus on Paul's instructions for husbands, which can be boiled down to love your wife as Christ loved the church. He says this three times, the clear imperative command, husbands, love your wives at the beginning, the middle and end of this passage. Now, of course, all believers are commanded to love their neighbor as themselves. This is Jesus's second great commandment. And if you look up in your pew Bibles at the opening of chapter five, uh, Paul has already said this. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Our love for one another is based on Christ's love uh, for us. And he echoes this command now as it is applied to the particular calling of husbands. One particular loving relationship that married men are called to fulfill. I'll read from verse 18 in chapter 5 to the end, or rather to verse uh, 33, which is the end of the chapter. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled by the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. I ask you to join me in our prayer of illumination, which we can find in the bulletin. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we have an outline in the back inside cover of our bulletin. Uh, three main points. Christ's love for the church. The husbands uh, must love their wives as Christ loved the church. And third, diversity and mutuality in love. And we have many subpoints as we look in a little more detail as Paul gives us much detail of Christ's love for the church. And one of the most amazing survival stories I think I've ever encountered 
is that of Aaron Ralston. I had to look up his name. I wouldn't expect any of you to remember it. In April of 2003, Ralston was canyoneering alone in Utah, hiking through a treacherous, narrow slot canyon. Some of these canyons were so narrow uh, that he could barely squeeze his body through. It was very, very tight. And while descending from a boulder, the boulder that he was holding onto dislodged and fell. And as it fell, it, it hit his left hand and crushed it against the wall. And then it fell and lodged against his right arm effectively pinning him to the wall of the canyon and trapping him in place. Ralston was alone. He hadn't notified anyone of his whereabouts. Safety tip, never go camping alone. If you must go camping alone, tell someone where and when you are going. Suffice it to say uh, that he survived because he remained calm and kept his head. But he was trapped in place in that canyon for 127 hours. It's the name of the movie that was made about this story. During which time, he tried everything to escape, as you can imagine. He saw his death impending. He tried to break up the boulder. He had one of those little tiny multi-tools. Michael probably has one. With like a two-inch blade on it. And he started chipping at the boulder to see if he could dislodge it or move it or anything. But it was stuck. His trapped arm started to die. It actually produced noxious gases, started to inflate due to lack of circulation. And he realized the only way he could survive was by amputating his own arm. He did this by first breaking the radius in the ulna, using his leverage, and using his tiny, dull, two-inch blade over the course of an hour to sever the connecting tissues. Perhaps the relevance of this survival story has become clear to you by now. Ralston applied and finally executed upon himself the brutal, ruthless logic that lies behind all medical amputation. Sometimes a part of our body, an arm, a leg, a toe, an ear, becomes so damaged or diseased or even dead that it threatens the whole. In which case it makes sense to cut off the diseased member to save the body. Obviously, We do everything we can, right? 127 hours of avoiding that horrible conclusion. And the love of Christ for the church, however, takes this logic of amputation and flips it on its head. One of the best articles on this topic is called, how it refers to, uh, the title says something about turning headship on its head. Jesus Christ in the gospel reverses the natural order of things. He sacrifices the head To heal and restore the diseased and dying members of his body. In the kingdom of God, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. This is the nature of self-sacrificial Christian love. Oh, sacred head now wounded. With grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns, thy only crown. Oh, sacred head, what glory. What bliss till now was thine. Yet though despised, And gory, I joy to call you mine. The metaphor of head and body was used often in the ancient world. It was used to speak of a general's relationship to his army, of an emperor's relationship uh, to the empire. It was almost always used to argue for the importance of unity, right? We need to stay united for health. 
But it was also used explicitly when you had to motivate part of that body to sacrifice themselves to protect the head. That was always the logic, right? Aaron Ralston only survived because he preserved the head and the chest, the heart of his body. Almost any part of the body can be sacrificed. Division of infantry, go do it. Should be sacrificed to save the head. But in the gospel, the church's head has sacrificed himself for us. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 1 John 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, here's the point of our text today. In marriage, the husband is called to live out the beautiful story of this reversal on a daily basis. The story of the selfless love of a head for his body. The story of our sacred heads wearing of that thorny crown. This is the great mystery that is before us today. And I hope that it will preach the gospel to all of us. For all of us are members of the body and have this sacred head as our head. So I want to look first at Christ's love for the church and and some of the things that Paul says about it, and there are four sub-points here. It, it sacrifices and forgives. It sanctifies and glorifies. It is based on one flesh unity, and it inspires our reverence for him. This is why the first point in our outline is Christ's love for the church. The passage is clearly about the husband's duty to love his wife. Paul repeats it three times, as I've said, in verse 25 and 28 and 33. And yet 75% of the words in this text are talking about Jesus. Remember, the Christian imperative, how we live our lives, is grounded in the indicative, the reality of who you are by faith in Christ. And the primary character here is the self-sacrificial character of Jesus' love. In verse 25, when Paul teaches us that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, he says, and gave himself up for it. He's referring back, as I've already said, to 5.2. That all believers are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. You see that self-sacrificial character. Love is the measure of all. And Christ's love is the measure of all Christian love. Paul in Romans can write, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, this universal background to the love command, just 23 verses earlier, raises an interesting question for us today, and I hope to attempt an answer at it today and next week. If everyone is commanded to love, why does Paul single out the husband in this relationship as the lover in the marriage relation? If everyone is commanded to love, why does Paul single out the husband? Why doesn't he say, as many marriage sermons do, husbands and wives must love each other? It's true. Clearly the wife is to love her husband. She must, according to chapter 5, verse 2. And as we'll see next week, you could similarly flip the script on submission, right? If all believers are commanded to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, in verse 21... 
Why does Paul then single out wives for the duty of submission in the marriage relationship? You could simply say, husbands and wives must submit to each other. It would be true. There's a great temptation to do this when submission is not popular in our culture and in our society. And indeed, indeed, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 4 and 5, Paul talks about the mutuality of husband and wife, particularly in the sexual relation. He says husbands don't have the rights over their own body. The wife doesn't have a right over her body. Entirely mutual. That was like mind-blowing for the ancient Mediterranean culture. So Paul can do the mutuality thing. This is, in fact, precisely the argument that is made by many Christians, evangelical Christians today, commonly called egalitarians. Egalitarian comes from the word for equal, and they just want to only emphasize what is fully equal in function and status between husbands and wives. The egalitarian argument says that submission is mutual, love is mutual, everything is mutual, and entirely flattens the relationship between husbands and wives. And basically says, yeah, Paul kind of goes overboard in chapter 5. He's influenced by his time and place. Let's set that aside. There is mutuality here, brothers and sisters, and we will get to it in our third point. But before we jump to the end and the version of the story we want to hear, we better listen to the Holy Spirit and the version of the story he needs us to hear. We need to wrestle with the text which is before us and the troublesome concept of headship and submission. It teaches this quite clearly, and it's not Paul's opinion. It's grounded in our creation, in the words of Moses, in the words of Christ, and in Christ's relation with the church. If we don't wrestle with the qualified distinction in marriage between husbands and wives, with the diversity of their roles, then we lose the profound mystery. The whole point of the profound mystery is the relation of the head to his body. We lose a great and beautiful picture in our lives, in our homes, of Christ's self-sacrificial, saving love as it is found in working itself out in the church. And here Paul gives a glimpse into why God has made Adam and Eve differently. If you were here with us last week, God granted diversity and unity by creating Adam from the dirt and Eve from Adam. They have one flesh, bone of bone, flesh of flesh. A common foundation in DNA. We now know the wonders of modern science. And yet, diversity, and indeed their very origins are diverse. And he did this, we are told, so that the husband, as the head of his wife, could look at his wife as himself. As a part of himself. That's exactly what Paul says in our text. He did this so he could turn the world's picture of headship on its head. So the husband could be a picture of Christ's humiliation. And that humiliation that we read about in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, in all glory, right? Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and even death on a cross. You see, this relation between husband and wife, which echoes and mirrors and is patterned upon Christ's relationship to the church, sanctifies the Christian husband. I fall short of this commandment every day, and I'm called to greater holiness. And it also sanctifies the Christian wife. Both male and female together reflect the image of God equally. Equally. 
This is what we might want to emphasize here and, and point out, right? This, to use a fancy word, ontological equality. They are equal before God. In his creation, the male husband is not in his being or gifts or abilities or powers superior to his female wife. I repeat, the male is not superior to the female. Either in creation, in the order of humanity, or in marriage. The distinctions of roles does not create superiority. In redemption, the husband and wife are joint heirs of the grace of, of, of the grace of life. Sorry, I almost said the grace of Christ. First Peter 3. We are joint heirs. But the husband alone has been given the role of head in a special way. And in this relationship with his own wife alone, not among all women, but with his own wife, so that he may play the part of Christ in a great drama of redemption in the household. He might create a picture of Christ's love for all of us here in this room, because we're all the bride of Christ. This love is self-sacrificial and forgiving. And of course, Christ's self-sacrifice is not without a purpose. It's for the sake of removing our sins. Christ gave himself, Paul says here, to save his body. It wasn't an empty gesture. It wasn't a mere display. Oh, this is how humble I am. No, he was doing something necessary. The sacrifice washes and cleanses the church and makes her holy and blameless. It was the efficacious and necessary means of our salvation. And this brings us to that second point, in, of the sub-point of, of the first point. This love of Christ sanctifies and glorifies the church. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The electing predestinating love of Christ, which has been set upon each and every one of you believers in this room, since the foundation of the world has known its end from the beginning. It's had a goal and a purpose it desires and it will attain. He loves the church to make her holy. He gives himself to wash her, to make sinners saints. And he cleans and washes you to present you as a glorious bride to himself. Paul uses the Old Testament imagery we heard today in Ezekiel chapter 16. You all heard it, right? The goal is the glorious wedding of an orphan. <laughs> in, the, in the rather kind of R-rated language of the prophets. A baby left in the wilderness. The umbilical cord wasn't even cut. Who knows, maybe the mom died alone in childbirth. She wasn't washed. She wasn't cleansed, covered in afterbirth. And when I passed by you, Yahweh says through the prophet, I saw you wallowing in your own blood. I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. And I spread the corner of my garment over you. And I covered your nakedness. And I bathed you with water. And I washed off your blood. And I anointed you with oil. I clothed you also. I adorned you. He goes into detail about the, the beautiful garments. The wedding garments he prepares. Probably a, a, whole, a whole month's worth of garments. Your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. 
is sort of a caricature, right? It's not true. It doesn't bear true for everyone, but ladies enjoy fine clothing more than men, fashion, right? I think that's a fair caricature. It's true in my house. I can say that for sure. <laughs> Anyone who's ever seen me dress confirm that. Our Heavenly Father likes a nice set of clothes. He cares, dear women, that you be adorned, that you'll be beautiful on that day. Gave you fine flour and honey and oil. He's a foodie too. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Now Ezekiel continues. If you want to get a little discouraged this Lord's Day, read what Israel did after that. (laughs) And Hosea talks about what Israel did after the honeymoon. Pretty nasty stuff. That's our sin. Yes, it's true. But Tim Keller describes how in marriage we are called to love our spouse, not for who they are, but for the person they will become in God's grace. Stanley Hauerwas says, you never truly know the person you marry. Surely many of you have heard this if you're married in in premarital counseling. He writes, we never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Even if we first marry the right person, the right person, just give it a while. He or she will change. Got one last. Marriage changes us. You know, there's a dynamic in engagement and marriage where up until the vows are said, you're trying to get to the deal. You're trying to close the deal. Everyone's being a little careful. You're always brushing your teeth, brushing your hair. You're looking good. You're presenting the best up until the deal is closed, right? And then literally the next day, it changes. You're stuck with each other. That's profound. I don't think we've begun to think about that in a proper way. Who you are marrying is the person you are confident they will become, and as Christians, we marry the person that God is making this person. Everyone has flaws, wounds, weaknesses, insecurities, scar tissue. And the crucible that is marital love will reveal them all. Each and every one of them. But Christ loved us as no other bridegroom has ever loved his bride. Because he knew all the sins. He knew all the darkness. He knew all the selfishness and hatred in our hearts. And he loved us for a purpose to make us holy. I was going to have one of the sub points here be Christ's marital love, his love for his bride is eschatological. But I thought that was too much theology. But it is. Eschatology is what we will be in glory. And Christ loves us for glory, into glory. Christ's love for the church is eschatological, Ephesians 1, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So that in Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. What for? Why? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There's going to be a temple in glory. There is a temple. It's being built now. You're a living stone and God is dwelling in our midst. That's why Christ married you. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. There is a future endpoint and goal. 
And so we must, husbands, getting ahead of myself a bit, think of how we love our wives in marriage. It is based upon the one flesh unity, and that's a key theme in this passage. Christ is the Savior of his body. Brothers and sisters, it's not accidental that Paul's like, oh, I should also say there's some married people in Ephesus. Maybe I should mention marriage. Some people have said this is the climax of the whole letter. God loves us to make us holy and blameless in eternity past. And he's teaching this about marriage because he wants the church to be one. And the oneness of the church is built upon and strengthened and supported like flying buttresses by happy, united homes in the church. Marriages are a building block in the unity of the church body. Christ is the savior of his body, the church. That's what Paul says here. And in the same way, he writes in verse 28, that husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Some of the ancient philosophers said that marriage was never really held forth as a big deal. Or love was never held forth as a big deal. We'll get to this in a moment in marriage. But some of the philosophers said, you know, you should love your wife. Just practically, it'll go a little bit better with you if you do. (laughs) Not for this reason. The word became flesh. Jesus took on human flesh. He had to pay our sins. Absolutely. Primarily. Right? But there's another corollary there. To be our sympathetic high priest. Hebrews 2 says, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. But he was God. Couldn't he show us mercy? Couldn't he be a faithful high priest without taking on human flesh? No. He had to have that one flesh unity of marriage. And in chapter 4, the author writes further, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus loves us as his bride because he's one flesh with us. God took on flesh so that he might know what it's like to be tempted. And save sinners. Remember Christ's one flesh union with the church is the model for Adam's one flesh union with Eve. It comes first. The incarnation was later, but the plan was prior. Maybe God created Adam and Eve differently in part for this reason. That Adam might emulate his coming savior Jesus and love Eve as part of his own flesh, as a member of his own body. In 1 Peter 3, another passage that's not very popular, talking about husbands and wives... Peter talks about uh, the wife as the the weaker vessel. It's very fascinating doing research on marriage in this period. Wives were often married anywhere from age 12 to 17, girls for the first time. Their husbands were 10 or 20 years older. I'll get to this in a second, but she was basically an employee of the husband. There was a contractual relationship. And the point was to secure uh, legal heirs. But because of the diet in the ancient world... A lot of women suffered and struggled from anemia. They were constantly getting pregnant. And literally, they would be on their sick beds for most of the month. Love her as a weaker vessel. Because she's doing this for the sake of your children. And she's your flesh. God's mysterious creation gives a natural reason for a husband to love his wife. She is a part of me. And in childbearing, this natural concern for the wife becomes even greater when husband and wife share a love and affection for a child that's literally a reflection of both of them in its genetic makeup. 
Ecclesiastes has that wonderful passage often read at marriages. Though a man may prevail against one who is not alone, two will withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. It is true. And finally, importantly, the love of Christ inspires our reverence for him. Paul sums up and reiterates the message of this section in verse 33. And there's a conjunction here. It's translated in our ESV Bible, however. But this conjunction is, it signals kind of a return to the main point. He's kind of had a bit of a digression. He's quoted Genesis chapter 2. And then he comes back and he says, by way of conclusion, in summary, we might say, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There are a few things interesting about this summary. First, Paul emphasizes the application of this teaching, not to men and and not to husbands in general, but he he makes an over-the-top really emphasis on each and every one of you husbands. It's a very concrete command. You are called to be the head of your wife so you can do what Christ did and turn headship on its head. And the second thing about this summary is that it emphasizes that the husband's self-sacrificial love for his wife inspires and brings about her respect. He is to love her first. And it's grounded in our reverence and respect for Christ. Paul uses the same word here that he uses up in verse 21, where he talks about the church submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Same word. The wife has reverence for her husband because of his love. He uses a word that signals this is the result. Israel was called to revere and worship Yahweh because of the love he set upon her. That's the point of Ezekiel 16. Brothers and sisters, this portrayal of Christ's love for the church is entirely countercultural. It was countercultural then and it's countercultural today. Ancient marriage was not about love. As I said, it was contractual. There's a rabbinic text, a in this period, shortly after this period. And it describes the wife's duties. These are the kinds of labor, quoting, which a woman performs for her husband. She grinds flour, bakes bread, does laundry, prepares meals, feeds her child, makes the bed, and works in wool. And by the way, when they said make the bed, they didn't mean like straightening out the sheets, like literally making the bed, like you would make a mattress out of soft things. The wife is a childbearing servant. In this cultural moment. In other words, think of it. She provides food, clothing, and does the washing. This is a woman's work. This is a wife's work. Did you notice what Christ does in our passage? He cleanses and washes. He nourishes and cherishes, providing food. And he clothes and launders, providing a glorious wedding garment with no spot or wrinkle. Jesus, our head, not only saves his body, the church, by giving up his own life for her, sacrificing himself for her, but he engages in the most menial of household tasks, daily tasks of care and provision and love. This is what Jesus did, isn't it, on the night before he went to his death? And when he washed his disciples' feet, and Peter said, no, you can't wash me. Christ replied, if I do not wash you, you can have no share of me. We're all brothers and sisters here today because Jesus has gotten down on his knees and loved us in washing us. We love because he first loved us. He points the way. When a husband loves like this, he points the way to Christ, to his own sacred head. 
And this transitions us to our second main point. Husbands must love their wives as Christ loved the church. Somewhat uh, obvious here. It's the, the heading, it's the whole substance of this passage. Paul's instructions for husbands are contained within his description of, of Christ's love of the church. And this is why uh, these last two points of mine are really going to be quite brief. Because they're contained in the first point. Husbands must love their wives as Christ loved the church. Now, this analogy, we must point out, is not precise, and it's not entire. It's not one-to-one. The husband is not his wife's savior. He doesn't die for her sins. He doesn't wash and purify her in the same way. Their union, in fact, rather sanctifies both parties as they do have mutual patterns of submission to their Lord and Savior. But he does minister the forgiveness of Christ to his wife. He does forgive as he has been forgiven. And Paul does emphasize in this passage the one flesh motivation and foundation for his love. Again, when Aaron Ralston was trapped under that boulder, it took him a long time. He did everything in his power to avoid amputation. I'm sure if any of you were before a doctor, horribly, and having to contemplate such a thing, you'd say, a doctor, is there anything else we could do? Husbands should love our wives as our own bodies. This one flesh love reflects the intimacy of marriage, not just sexual intimacy, though that is in view, but the intimacy of sharing all things, sharing a home, a bed, a toilet. One of the things I emphasize when I perform a marriage is that we are not called to create this oneness. God created the oneness. It is bestowed upon us in a divine creative word. I now present to you for the first time in public. Mr. and Mrs. This is an indicative creative word. You are now one flesh. God creates something from something new. One from two. Now, allow me to address the husbands and wives here with a few words that come more or less straight from my marriage sermon. Marriage may be natural, but the depth and permanence of this one flesh bond is often overlooked and rejected in our culture. It is a divine bond, and for no earthly reason, save death alone, can it be broken. The law of God, his holy ordinance of marriage, binds you together in marriage. And this union is not the result of a contract or any other merely legal arrangement. It is not something that you, husband or wife, are working on or creating or could ever hope to create. It is not a feeling or a desire or a hope. It is God's doing by the power of his word. Let there be one flesh. In marriage, you are bound. And just as you did not bring this union into being, neither can you end it. Listen close. You too will be one flesh. This is not a goal. It's not something you're working on. It is a fact. One flesh. The world will deny the permanence of this union. Your family and friends at times will deny it. You yourselves, in moments of weakness, will deny it. In your hearts, in your heads, in your very guts, you will doubt this union. But there is one voice that matters, today and always, one witness who testifies, and he's in heaven. You are one flesh. The world abhors the permanence of this bond. It chafes under the holy ordinance of God. But it is wrong to think that loosening the marriage bond makes your life easier. Knowing that your wayward hearts will bid you to desert your spouse, to shirk from this new union, Spiritually, if not literally. But that is a false liberty that the world and the deceiver offers. 
Christian husband and Christian bride, such lapses are not live options to be pursued in your imagination or considered. Your commitment alone did not create this union, and it cannot alone sustain it. Rather, your commitment must flow from the union, and that is the blessing of marriage. God's holy and perfect law can be a burden for us sinners, yet the bond itself is a remedy for our failings. Even as the responsibilities mount, there is great liberty in the divine source of your union. God does not command you to make yourselves one flesh. Again, it's an impossible task. He brings this new reality into being and bids you live in its glorious light. Your new responsibilities flow from this newest and greatest fact about yourselves. Husband and wife, you are one flesh. And that's the same union we have with Christ. It's that same gospel truth. Selflessly, intimately, permanently, Jesus loves us. Final words of Ephesians. Love incorruptible. Third and finally, there is diversity and mutuality in love. It goes without saying that wives are to love their husbands, even as husbands are to love their wives. We are all as Christians to walk in love as imitators of God, as imitators of Christ, for he gave himself up for us all. But Paul focuses here on this diversity, as we have seen. He focuses on the husband's love and the wife's submission. And we'll explore this more next week from the perspective of the wife. Obviously, the husband's love is a form of submission, is it not? To sacrifice oneself for another. And yet, in both creation and redemption, this diversity remains prominent. And the very diversity of creation marriage of Adam and Eve is modeled on the diversity of Christ in the church. God knows the end from the beginning. But one thing must be emphasized. Throughout this, the relationship of husbands to their own wives and wives to their own husbands. Paul's instructions here, the diversity we see here in roles, is not a blueprint for society at large, for male and and female relationships in the workplace or in school, for career roles or leadership roles, what have you. We must set aside to a great deal societal developments of the role of women, And indeed, we can applaud many of the advances and protections, the advancement of women's rights over the last couple hundred years. They've saved lives. But though these changes in our society have definitely impacted our cultural institution of marriage, economically, technologically, sociologically, education levels, they do not touch upon the profound mystery Paul is talking about here. Christian husband, Christian wives are called to portray Christ and the church to their spouse. We're called to act out our part in the great drama of redemption. What a glorious and high and holy calling that is. Steve Baugh in his commentary makes the point in conclusion on this section. It's amazing how much Paul says and how little. This relationship can look different in every particular instantiation, in every culture, in every time and place. And yet the principles on which that relationship must be worked out are laid forth here in full. Paul didn't give us a recipe. He gave us the principles founded on the love of Christ for his church. And this calling, brothers and sisters, helps us as husbands and wives be remade after the image of Christ. And he will complete this work of sanctification with his love incorruptible. Let's pray. Merciful God, what a mystery, both in the sense that we would have never figured it out on our own. It's a puzzle we couldn't solve. But what a profound, mind-blowing mystery 
that you authored the very nature of husbands and wives in our creation so that we might reflect the glory of the gospel, the glory of your eternal love set on sinners for their restoration, that they might be glorious, filled with your glory on the day of Christ's return. Complete that work in us, dear Lord. Be a blessing to each and every one here, husbands, wives, children, parents, singles and married, masters and slaves. Help us all to see that we, as the bride of Christ, are in union with our sacred head. Help us all to grow in holiness and to learn and grow in wisdom, gospel wisdom, from this picture of the gospel that you give us in Christian marriage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.